Welcome to episode two of Aging Fast and Slow. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak to scientists, policy experts, and innovators about social justice issues in aging. What you're about to hear is a fascinating conversation with Dr. Keith Whitfield, who's an expert on aging among African-Americans. He discussed with us stress, longevity within families, between families, within twins, the role of desegregation of schools. And we also talked about the fruitfulness of collaboration and how to recognize good ideas when they're in front of you. We're excited to share this conversation with you. So Dr. Whitfield, uh, welcome to Aging Fast and Slow. Thank you, it's great to be here. Yeah. So you've clearly had a distinguished career studying aging in African-Americans. And, and today we're really excited to hear a bit more about your work. When we looked through some of your studies that really stood out to us, one of them that we were hoping you could tell us a little bit more about was your work around African-American twins. So how did you get the idea to even study twins? Boy, that's a long story. Let me see if I can cut it down a little bit. Um, I had uh, actually been a postdoc at the Institute of Behavioral Genetics at the University of Colorado. And my purpose in getting that training was that I was very curious about why we are who we are, why we can be so similar and so different, and why even within families we can be so similar and so different. And that training actually leads you to be able to do this kind of deciphering of things that might be from genetic sources and things that might be from environmental sources. And one of the main methods for doing that is using twins. Uh, I was also inspired, I have to tell you, by um, two cousins that I have who are named Keith and Kevin. And, you know, I used to just think that they were just fascinating. Um, I didn't know that I was already being a psychologist at, you know, 11, 12, or 13, right. you know, watching my cousin twins and seeing how different they were. Um, but uh, that, was, that was a lot of the beginning of it, was just really to try to understand sources of individual differences in aging for African Americans using a, an interesting method and approach. Interesting, and yeah. What were some of the main findings overall uh, in your twin studies, would you say? Um, it's finding things like something related to stress that people might think of as common, which is that a lot of the variability that you find in, in people around stress really comes from environmental things, not from genetic things. So you're not born with it, but there is a significant component that is genetic. So how we think about stress, how we perceive stress, does have something that originates in a way from our genes, but that has been modified, modulated, and, and changed in lots of different ways by the different environments that we're in. So, you know, that may not jump out to anybody as being groundbreaking, but it's very interesting to take a step back and really say, so what is the, the proportion that's coming from genes and coming from the environment? Right. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And so as you were sharing your work, you know, I was thinking about, I think many people, particularly many African-Americans, would point to stress as being a key driver of their health status. And, you know, I was wondering how, as you've disseminated this type of work, what sort of reactions have you gotten from people out in the kind of the lay community about your work? Well, you know, what's interesting, um, so there's the lay community and then there's even the scientific community. And one of the things that I have done essentially for most of my career 
um, is that I study within group uh, issues related to African Americans and don't simply rely on looking at comparisons. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a deep point that I try to make in, in every conversation that I have that um, when we do comparisons between, let's say, uh, whites and blacks, that what we do is understand that there is a difference. Right. But when I speak with lay folks, they look at me and saying, oh, that you found that there's a difference? Big deal. My mama could have told you that. Um, it doesn't seem like it, it comes out as, as this great epiphany. Right. But the bigger question is, is that even as you look at African Americans and some are doing well and some aren't doing as well, what are the causes of that so that we can ultimately be able to help folks be able to live the best lives that they can? My perspective also is on some of the work that we're doing now on longevity is that when you see that African-Americans have some of the lowest life expectancy, those who are living really long are really living long relative to other groups. So if you could understand maybe some of the things that might contribute to longevity in that group, those might be things that generalize to everybody. Right. So that they're an important group to study in and of themselves rather than simply saying they're different from another group. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, thank you, Keith. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the study that you and I worked on together because it, for me, it was such an aha moment of I was looking down an Excel sheet and I lined up all of the twins and I had them compiled right next to their twin and saw that the people who were born much earlier in the, in the 20th century had almost the exact same educational outcome at number of years and even the same job, like two different people were truck drivers, you know, two twins were hairdressers. And then as we moved farther down the century, that uh, there was much more difference between twins, where someone went to college and someone went to high school, or someone was a bricklayer and someone was a college professor of the two twins. And, it, it, and you and I worked on that and wondered whether that was partly because of as Jim Crow got loosened, people were able to achieve their own potential rather than having kind of the ceiling effect of society pushing them down. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that study or comment on it or rephrase it differently than what I said. Well, you did something which was to really highlight something that we had not taken a look at. A lot of times when work that I do, we use education uh, as a variable that can actually control for if you took a look and said, hey, well, but let's look at how similar or not they are. And I think I just hadn't stopped to think about that. And as we looked at some of those interesting differences, it was amazing to see how over time what, you know, we, you and I have many conversations about what we were actually seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think you're exactly right. What you were seeing is, is opportunities uh, that yeah. ended up coming out. I think it's even some changes within families. You know, it used to be that to be able to get a job, you definitely needed to have that connection. So if somebody got into a position, they then made a way for someone else. Now, I guess the same is still true now, but because there are many more opportunities, you see differences in being able to pursue what one was able to pursue. Parents probably weren't communicating to their children, you know, hey, your, your, your sister just got this job. That's a good job. You should think about that. Mm-hmm. and really encouraging and say, you know, let me support you in doing the things that you want to do. And that 
what we want to do as jobs or even how much education we want to pursue can be influenced by not just the genes that we share within a family, but also how that family actually constructs looking at possibilities, looking at opportunities, and encouraging us or or sometimes Mm -hmm. discouraging us from pursuing different uh, paths in terms of what we might do with our lives. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so kind of building on that theme of kind of what sets people up for opportunity, I know you've done some work, Keith, looking at educational desegregation and how that relates to what we see in in terms of cognitive function among African-Americans specifically. Would you mind sharing with us some of the things that were key in terms of what you discovered in that work? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, So a lot of it actually spun off from looking at North Carolina and seeing that, you know, you saw desegregated schools even into the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just looking at the history of desegregation, and when you look at that history, then you see that in Baltimore, Baltimore was one of the first three places uh, that was uh, tasked to go under desegregation. And unlike Washington, D.C. and New York, rather than black kids go to the white school, white kids went to one of the black schools. And so you had a very interesting dynamic there. But, yeah. you know, we started taking a look at it and saying, let's take a look at the very basic premise that desegregation was this wonderful thing and that everybody benefited in every sort of way. And what we found was was very mixed results, both when we looked at it in terms of just kind of one-time point, but also longitudinally, that some things improved and other things didn't necessarily, just because you went to a desegregated school. What was really interesting about this is, is that it overlapped a little bit in my time in North Carolina. And Jennifer Manley at the time was actually looking at influences of education on cognition. And we talked and she was like, you know, can you get school records or something like that? And, and I thought it would be great to, to have. But as we went back and looked at the records, what you found is that for the black schools, there, there weren't those records. Actually, we couldn't even find any for the white schools to be able to provide her with that information. So this has been a bigger issue that lots of people have been starting to think about is that quality of education that we assume came with changes that went along with desegregation that didn't always necessarily evince themselves in things that we're now seeing in older adults. In some ways it did, in some ways it didn't. I always think that, uh, and I've not measured this yet, so this is just complete guessing on my part, but it is those educational activities, it's reading and puzzles and all of those kinds of cognitive skills that we're seeing being promoted now I think those are the things that create just as much variability as those original sources of education that we saw from people either going to desegregated school or always going to segregated school. Well, and, and Jennifer Manley has, you know, has, has pointed out through her studies that the amount of school district funding and the length of the school year impacted later cognitive change. Mm-hmm. So if someone, you know, they didn't have schooling all throughout the harvest season, for instance, um, then they have more cognitive change as an older adult. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, fascinating to me personally, I would say that you did this work in North Carolina. I'm from just north of North Carolina and certainly people in my parents' generation experienced going to school in segregated schools and then in their later years, maybe at the high school level, going to desegregated schools. So any thoughts on what difference that might make if you spend a portion of your educational time in a segregated versus a desegregated school? Well, you know, it's interesting because we, we had those in our work in Baltimore. And well, what we tied it to was 
what were the last schools that you were going to? So they were tied to the highest level of education that you were able to obtain. And, you know, those for a lot of African-Americans, those, those were always desegregated schools, um, unless they decided to pursue uh, time at HBCUs, which... Uh-huh. And for anyone who's listening, so HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. Which, you know, that was something that in Baltimore was fascinating because you have a corridor with a lot of HBCUs that provided segregated, in a way, education at those upper levels of education. But for a lot of the ones that we saw in Baltimore, uh, they were a big mix of whether they went to an HBC or whether they went to a predominantly white institution. And that's a whole other area of study that we should really take a look at and see whether the stress and strains and things that for some of those folks who are breaking the color barrier, um, what does it mean to learn and to get an education under those circumstances versus one where it might be more welcoming you see people who have achieved what you've achieved that look like you. Um, those are some of the benefits that HBCUs actually offer the kids then and, and still do now. So we've not teased all of that out. It would be a very interesting question to look at. There's still a lot of papers to write. <laughs> <laughs> so you've obviously had a lot of great ideas throughout your career. So what would you say is your next big thing that you want to tackle? The answer to that question is real easy. I don't have no other ideas. I had, I think I really feel, feel like I... I've had three really good ideas, and what I've had is is hundreds of great collaborators that have taken me to be able to study lots of different things. You've got a lot of longevity, Keith. And um, for anyone who's listening, Keith is a fabulous collaborator, and I'm sure he would love to work with you on your ideas about what he could do with his data. Um, Before we wrap up, is there a piece of advice that you've been given by a mentor or someone else you've worked with that sticks with you, that helps guide you? There's been a lot, but one of the ones that sticks with me is, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I love collaborating. I think collaborations are the way that great science happens and it's fun at the same time, Mm -hmm. if you have the right collaborators. Um, But I had one collaboration where the person kind of took my ideas and ran with them. And I was very disturbed. I was like, you know, oh, this person I trusted. I can't believe it happened. I talked to one of my mentors about it. And he said, you know, you should think about good ideas like a bus. There's one coming by every few minutes. And that if you only had one good idea, you might as well just pack up shop and go home. You're going to have more good ideas. Uh-huh. So don't, don't worry about keeping them so close to your vest. You know, share them and think about them and take them out for a walk and collaborate with people. And if you have a collaboration that doesn't work out, hey, you learned your lesson and you go on to the next one. But it, it hopefully isn't the end of good ideas. And I think that that's one of the reasons why some of the approaches that I've tried to take in my career try to challenge the status quo about what's accepted and what's not accepted. Like people told me I shouldn't be studying genetics in blacks because of some of the history Uh, that's around looking at genes and making assumptions, incorrect ones, about inferiority of African-Americans. And I just took that on and said, you know, it's not true, so why should I let that guide our science? African-Americans have genes. And even in terms of looking at within group versus between group, I was told that I'd never get a grant funded if I just looked at between group, or just looked at within group, um, that I had to do between group measures, that that's how everybody else did it. And whenever you tell me that's what everybody else does, I just try to go the opposite way. Uh-huh. So. That's a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as we wrap up here, are there any uh, 
you know, books or websites that you'd like for, for our audience to uh, take a look at? Well, there is this fantastic book that uh, Tamara Baker and I did, uh, I think it's back in 2014, which is the handbook on minority aging. Okay. Um, there were lots of people who contributed as editors and then people who contributed chapters. And I think that it's a wonderful resource to be able to have. But then again, <laughs> I was one of the editors for the book. So, of course, I think that. But I think that it's a good way when people have questions and you're looking for sometimes how to start, sometimes basic information, sometimes ideas about methodology. Uh, a lot of that is contained in that book. It's, it's fantastic. Well, great. We'll link to that on the website for this episode. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> this, really this was great. Well, thank you. Take care. Thank you to Dr. Whitfield for joining us. Check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu forward slash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. We also invite you to add to the conversation by tweeting at Aging Center. At the Center for Innovative Care and Aging, we develop behavioral interventions and implement and scale them. To all the researchers out there, if you're developing a behavioral intervention and trying to figure out how to advance it through the research pipeline, we have a great Summer Research Institute for you. It's on June 8th, a day of learning best practices, workshopping your ideas on how to fund, test, and develop behavioral interventions. For more information, contact agingcenter at jhu.edu. In the next episode, we are talking to Dr. Gilbert G about time disparities in aging. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Erica Hornstein for production assistance, Rafe Reggie for technical expertise, Tim Carl for managing our host website, and Sydney Logan for marketing. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.